0: Hello, everybody, welcome back to a brand new episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, I'm your host, Simon. What happens here is, uh, got it in front of me, Callum, has put me together a script for today's episode The Rise and Fall of Wayne Silk Perry, DC's Most Feared Triggerman. Is a Triggerman like an assassin? Uh, if you didn't guess, uh, and if you are new, I've never read this before, this is all new to me. We're going to find out a whole bunch of stuff about it. Afterwards, of course, if you're enjoying watching this on YouTube, you will see images. If you are enjoying listening to this as a podcast, well, you enjoy the uh, the background music and the effects and all sorts of stuff like that. I hope because they're put together by our fantastic editor, Jen. So uh, that's how it all works. And let's just jump into it, shall we? Soundboy Burial, this is my Wayne Perry flow. Y'all know nothing about Wayne Perry, though. District of Columbia, guns on all y'all tumblers. Oh, is this like a rap or something? (laughs) Brilliant, Simon. It works so well when you don't read these ahead of time. No, this isn't an experimental spoken word episode. We're kicking off with a quote from the rapper Jay Z. Fans might recognize these lines as from his 2013 track Tom Ford, but as the lyrics say, there's a solid chance that you have no idea who the person they're referencing is. And also, I do, I do know that it's Jay Z. I just like to make fun that it's Jay Z because in the UK we say a Z like a Z. And I think I did it on another channel I do once. People were like, Simon, it's Jay-Z. And so I might not be super in touch with popular culture, but I do know that. By the time we're done with today's Casual Criminalist short, you will. Today we're here, oh, know who Wayne Perry is. Yes, it's the title of the episode, I should hope so. Otherwise, we're all on a winding journey to nowhere, which uh, some people say we are on with the Casual Criminalist because they're like, Simon boy, just tell me the story. Why do you have to talk so much? So sorry. Today, we're heading to the drug ravaged streets of the 1980s, Washington, D.C. To take a look at the legends of one of the most prolific hitmen and gangsters in the city's history, Wayne Silk Perry. So, Triggerman is a hitman. Found that out early. What'd you say? So, how exactly did Wayne become notorious enough to receive a name drop from one of the biggest rap artists in the world? Basically, it was down to barrel loads of brutality, a betrayal worthy of Shakespeare, and most of all, a pair of brass balls. PICKING A FIGHT WITH THE WRONG MAN One afternoon in 1984, a group of young guys new to Southwest DC's projects kept watch on a street corner. Walking down the way came a tall, fairly skinny man in his early 20s. A safe enough target, they thought. As the guy walked by, the gang jumped him, starting a brawl that spilled out onto the road. Their victim wasn't going down easy. He held his own against the group, so one of them grabbed a chain and wrapped it around the head. But the guy just kept on fighting. He kept fighting right up until the police sirens started blaring down the road, then took off down an alleyway. The police arrived to find some of the thugs still lingering around, but hadn't quite got a grasp on who was involved and who was just a bystander. They were out to get a pretty clear clue. Yeah, it's got this strange situation to walk about. It's like, no one wants to mention what's going on here, guys. Hello. Their attempted victim reappeared, leaping through a window with a baseball bat in hand. He ran for the guy that smacked him with the chain. One swing to the skull knocked him down. A flurry more hits in the head ended his life. Wait, the police are there, right? Is he just doing this in front of the cops? You're crazy. All of this happened right in full view of two Washington, D.C. officers. But before the cops could react, the man had disappeared again. You're mental. Why aren't the cops taking out their guns? In the UK, you'd be like, yeah, the cops will just stand there. It's like, because he's got a bat, they've got little bats. <laughs> like, okay. But in America, it'd be like, yo... I got a gun, put down the bat. Gun beats bat. Everyone knows this. The story has been repeated thousands of times in the underworld of DC over the past four decades. How accurate it might be is up for debate. Some versions have it that he shot the guy instead, purely in self-defense. These things tend to grow arms and legs as they leave the pages of court documents to become semi-legendary rumors. I mean, it sounds like it sounds pretty legendary, doesn't it? Like not like legendary, but, you know, the stuff of legend rather than actual stuff of reality. It's one of hundreds of similar stories that together form the reputation of a gangster so fearless, so ruthless, that for years he seemed utterly untouchable. The killer that those unfortunate young ones crossed was our man, Wayne Silk Perry. Batman Begins Born on November the 14th, 1962, Perry's fondness for baseball bats began at an early age. No, he wasn't cracking skulls in the kindergarten for a milk-money racket. The fearsome gangster's first passion was sports, playing baseball for the school team. But like many kids growing up in gang-controlled inner cities, he was exposed to crime from a young age and got directly involved as young as 12. It really is crazy. Like, that is so young to be just up to crimes. Like, involved with gangs. I feel we should, I I guess they do a lot to kind of prevent this stuff. But it does seem, you know, if you start then, you're not going to be like, well, now I'm 18, off to college. Throughout his early teens in the mid 70s, he made his pocket money by hustling gamblers using sets of rigged dice and cards. The old hands were oblivious to his con and used to take young Silk around town to gambling meets as a good luck totem. <laughs> Where well, good luck totem wasn't, he conning them. Just a few years later, he graduated from swindling to robbery, riding shotgun on bank drops and drug den stickups. High school baseball just can't kind of have the same rush after that. So when he was 17, Wayne politely quit the team by beating his coat unconscious with a bat. Holy sh! How is this guy? I mean. He should be in prison, right? He beat up a man at 17 with a bat until he was unconscious. That's like, you you go to prison for that, for a while, right? (laughs) He was barred from all DC schools, so had to transfer to one far from home. He should have been transferring to prison. What's going on? There Wayne claims to have killed another student who threatened to steal his chain necklace. And that's why he should have gone to prison. So his academic career was coming to an interesting conclusion, but who needs an education when you're already turning over thousands of dollars as an armed robber? I don't know, someone who doesn't want to be a criminal and risk going to jail, and also, you know, you know, it's not really moral, is it? That's why I never bothered with Primary Seven, as Wayne himself once explained. They knew I'd shoot anybody, police, killers. I used to go on robberies with some hella gangsters, but they always took the bullets out of my gun because they said I was trigger-happy. A gunman so famously mental that his mates didn't even let him have bullets. Who knows how many murders he had under his belt before he even finished his teens. He claims to have shot police officers during that time, too. Who are you claiming this to? And you shouldn't claim stuff like this. Like we talk often on Casual criminalists, like don't write down your crimes. We've talked about this many times. Many people write down their crimes? It's a terrible idea. And here we have this guy doing something similar. Like, don't, don't, don't be like out saying, like, I kill police officers. It's not a good idea. I mean, unless you want to get caught. In which case, let's just say it's a fantastic idea. If you're a criminal, make sure you tell people about all of your crimes and write them down. That's great. He was just 22 years old when he used the head of that young hoodlum for batting practice as we saw earlier on, adding one more mark to the tally. After a short while on the run for that deadly beatdown, Wayne's mother encouraged him to turn himself over to the police. His compliance and the fact that he was attacked first meant that the charges only amounted to manslaughter. He walked free after just a few years behind bars. (laughs) It was pretty serious. But he did kill someone. He beat someone to death, and now he's back on the streets, and he's got a history of violence. I mean, it's great that he handed himself in, but then they should be like, well, well done for handing yourself in, but you're gonna go to prison forever. Or many, many decades. Making a name for himself. Am I being too harsh on this guy? I know he turned himself in, but he beat his coach unconscious, he's bragged about killing police officers, and then he beat a guy to death with a baseball bat in front of two police officers, allegedly. So um, I, I don't feel like I'm being too harsh, but I feel Callum's being like quite soft on him so far. Anyway, let's move on. When the daylight killer returned to the streets, he leveraged his ballsy reputation to gather a local gang of stick-up kids and robbers around him. Drawn to his fearlessness and light-hearted charisma, they followed him on a campaign of robbery, kidnapping and extortion that spread his name far and wide throughout the DC underworld. Now, a bit of a forewarning here. Some of the anecdotes about Wayne's crimes come to us via a street true crime website called Gangster Report, and a certain racially charged word is used pretty liberally in some of their articles. In the interest of totally not torpedoing Simon's career… <laughs> thank you i've taken the precaution of swapping those out for chap. (laughs) oh my god i'm gonna get cancelled one day one of wayne's crew members later recounted to the site he put me on a chap one time he wanted me to lean on the chap i put the squeeze on the chap i told him i wanted 50 grand then silk acted like he found out i was squeezing the chap and told the chap that he would get me to leave him alone for 50 g's it was like taking candy from a baby for silk. Okay, I know my edit it sounds a bit too much like a Charles Dickens novel, but you get the point. Yeah, we definitely do. That kind of con was the gang's bread and butter for a while. They even expanded their scope to target wealthy white lawyers and Italian mobsters too. It's like, okay, who are we targeting? Well, these very related groups of Italian mobsters and lawyers. Although I guess there are mob lawyers and such things, but anyway. However, Silk soon discovered that there were even easier ways to turn a major profit in the DC gangland. Silk never had any qualms about killing those who got in his way, but eventually he turned his talent for murder into the core part of his gang's business. When that happened, even some of the toughest gangsters in the city started sleeping with the lights on. The untimely death rate among DC drug lords and their goons started violently spiking in 1987, leading some to believe that an out of town gang had sent a contract killer to clear the playing field. But really, this was when Wayne Silk Perry started officially accepting contract killings. Dude, this guy's a dangerous man. The identity of the target didn't matter much so long as the price was right, and as we've already seen, the presence of witnesses didn't really bother Silk much either. It was said that he made a habit of sleeping in his target's back gardens, waiting for the perfect time to strike. When he found his time, his methods were… Thorough. I don't play that across the street, shit. I walk right up and put Seven in the head like it ain't shit. Dude, Seven feels like overkill. I know, like in movies, the spies do the double tap. And as a kid, whenever I played James Bond games, I was like, always oh, double tap like a spy. But, uh, I don't think there's no there's no such thing as the Seven tap. <laughs> I think you got him after one or two or three for safety. Seven seems a bit excessive, Wayne, I have to say. Yes, agreed, Callum. With each killing, his John Wick-style Baba Yaga reputation grew stronger. I don't know what a Bay Jagger is, I saw I've seen John Wick. And I have to say, I know people love John Wick to no end, but I found it quite boring. It's just overly violent and there's not much of a story. And I fell asleep in the second John Wick. Smash that dislike button. <laughs> so much so that even when people figured out he was behind the killings, most were too terrified to go seeking revenge, so Silk enjoyed an unprecedented level of hood immunity. Even though his moral compass was a tad faulty, DC's murder goat <laughs> did hold on one value extremely dear. Loyalty. As one of his gang put it, Wayne only respected men. If a dude was a rat, he wasn't supposed to breathe, let alone come out of his hole. No matter how much money the rat had, spent or flashed, or how hard he flossed, that meant nothing to Wayne. Only integrity and heart counted to silk. What's his flossing got any? I-, I assume flossing must be like some sort of slang, but it's like he's got excellent dental hygiene. Doesn't matter if he's a rat, even though his dental hygiene is excellent. Living according to this slightly twisted criminal code, Wayne did right by his own and would never turn a weapon on his friends or followers unless they crossed him. drug dealers of the city knew this and started bringing tributes to Wayne and his crew in the hope of buying safety. These included some of the biggest players of of the 1980s DC underworld. Towards the height of his fame, they would even avoid driving around in their fanciest cars just in case Wayne realized that they might have a bit more cash on hand than they were admitting. Writer writer for DC Crime Story, Scott McCabe, sums it up best in the quote. His reputation is the Michael Jordan of the murder game. Basically, if you were in DC and were in the drug business, gang business, you knew Perry and you knew not to mess with him. At the end of the decade, that reputation brought a big-name gangster knocking at his door. It is pretty incredible that this guy's just so scary. <laughs> he's, like, immune. It's not like at any point the, the other gangsters are going to get together and we like, we should off this Wayne guy because people are so scared to suggest it. It's kind of a... I mean, he seems like an absolutely terrible person, but, I mean, that's pretty, pretty ballsy. Like, what did Callum say? Like, giant brass balls? Yes. Alberto Alpo Martinez Alberto Alpo Martinez started his drug-dealing career at the tender age of 13, in Harlem, NYC. He managed to claw his way right up to the top of the Big Apple's underworld, becoming one of the biggest kingpins of the East Coast. In 1989, he decided to expand his operation to D.C. since the city's resident drug lord, Rayful Edmund, was recently locked up. So Alpo sent his men to scout out the best muscle that the city had to offer. That's how he came into contact with the Michael Jordan of murder. (laughs) He claims when they met he bailed the killer out of jail, but Wayne's version is a little more interesting. He was on his way to kill Alpo at a nightclub after hearing the drug lord was putting a hit out on him, but when he got there, his friends convinced him it was all a lie and the two became friends. The gang world is so bizarre. So how did you you guys meet? How did you become friends? Well, let me tell you a story. (laughs) From 1989 onwards, Wayne Berry was Alpo's go-to hitman in the district, and eventually worked as his bodyguard and enforcer for the Martinez organization. In exchange, Wayne received huge wads of cash, or bricks of crack cocaine, for him and his gang to sell off. In that situation, I'd be like, wait, I don't want to be paid in crack, because I have to sell the crack. Just give me money. I don't want to be paid in crack. How many times? Firstly, they blitzed the DC underworld, killing off rivals in droves. Some dealers ran in fear to the police, willing to testify against the duo in exchange for their own safety. But not even that put them beyond the reach of Silk. He was well known for offing anyone who snitched to the police, It was even even if they have excellent the dental hygiene. It was even alleged that one of the witnesses he killed was his ex-girlfriend, stabbed in the face, then shot down outside Constitution Hall after a concert. Well, Wayne, maybe if you weren't so fond of blasting people right in front of crowds, there wouldn't be any witnesses in the first place. Just a bit of constructive criticism there. One of his underlings from those days gave some insight into how they dealt with rival dealers working their turf. and There's a quote here. I had a few young dudes hustling for me. A New York dude around the corner told him that he couldn't hustle until he was finished with his shit. Wayne told shortly to go back outside and stand on the corner. As soon as the New York dude bent around the corner, Wayne hit his ass in the head. And everything he had in the clip. Okay, sorry, that was really quite hard to read. It's all broken up and confusing. Silk then returned to the scene just after the police and ambulance arrived to see if he needed to add any snitches to his hit list. Holy shit. This was how Alpo and Silk took over hundreds of street corners in DC and rode the crack epidemic to massive wealth. Together they shipped 500 kilograms of product within two years of working together. According to UN figures, the street value of that would have been around 65.5 million at the time. I always find that the street value of drugs is always a bit misleading in the news because that's like yeah we seized like a billion pounds of coke and it's like yeah you did if it was sold at like a high price on the street but it's like that coke probably was way cheaper when it was you know obviously was cheaper from wherever you buy large quantities of coke from and then when it got shipped into the country it would be distributed among a whole bunch of people who distribute it, a whole bunch of other people who distribute it to you know it's not real i mean it is worth that much but also it's not It's just better news and it looks better for the police to be like, yeah, street value, rather than like wholesale value from Colombia. The height of his powers. With the patronage of one of the biggest drug dealers in US history, Wayne Silk Perry was now a brand's name among the American criminal underworld. He claimed to have committed well over 100 murders throughout his career. If we were treating this as a regular serial killer episode, then that would probably put him ahead of the worst ones in history. For comparison, even the total combined victims of John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, and Gary Ridgway didn't touch triple digits. Wayne might have been more prolific than the unholy trinity, but when their killings are contained within the criminal underworld, murderers apparently get a free pass and mentions in the Billboard Hot 100. Yeah, I don't know why it is different, but it is. Isn't it? I don't know why though. I guess it's because there's no personal vendetta or like, I mean, I don't, you know, Syracuse don't necessarily have personal vendettas, but they're like, they're, they're crazy. They're like psychopaths. Whereas this guy, probably definitely a psychopath, but also it's like, yeah, it's a job. <laughs> I mean, it's a horribly dark job and you're murdering people, but it does feel different somehow. And I don't really know why. Interesting. Part of the reason Wayne Perry is so romanticized is his fierce loyalty to his nearest and dearest. By 1990, he was basically a hood superstar, rich beyond his wildest dreams, and he made a habit of sharing his newfound wealth with his community and crew. One of his gang, named Manny, explained how Wayne used his terrifying influence to get him back on his feet after a long prison stint. We pull up in front of a well-known spot that's owned by some dudes that's supposed to be major in the city. Wayne looked at me and said, go in there and tell such and such to send a bag of that money out here. So I went in, and with no problem, the dude gave me a bag full of money. Wayne had chaps scared to death. Chaps, square back bracketed there. Once you've robbed and killed enough people, just bypass all the unpleasantness of a stick up and just skip to the ending. <laughs> That's so crazy. You can go in there, yeah. Like uh, Wayne Silk sent me, and like, here's your money. <laughs> Epic. I mean, in a terrible, horrible way. That kind of power turned Wayne into a god in the eyes of his crew and young contract killers, and a demon to almost everyone else. He was able to outfit his gang with heavy weaponry, including grenades and sticks of dynamite. Holy sh! It's not heavy weaponry. Yeah, we managed to get an automatic gun. It's like, no. We got grenades. By this point, basically everyone and their gran knew that Wayne and his gang were behind dozens of killings, but for years the authorities couldn't find anyone willing to speak out, until one day they did. I mean, why did no one want to speak against him? Because he's the most scariest man alive, and the thing he hates more than anything else is snitches. The career of this murderous Michael Jordan was cut tragically short, not long after his 30th birthday. (laughs) Wayne's downfall. Throughout the first few years of the 90s, the FBI had been tracking Wayne's movements, trying to build a case against him. Stupid snitch, FBI. Just joking. It wasn't until 1991 that they finally found someone willing to flip on the notorious murder MVP. They made sure to keep this star witness alive long enough for them to issue a warrant for the gunman's arrest in 1992. The following year, They managed to catch him. The 27 point indictment against Wayne included charges of kidnapping, racketeering, conspiracy to deal crack, witness retaliation, robbery, and murder for the furtherance of a criminal enterprise. (laughs) Just can't just go murder. It's like, isn't murder enough? A total of eight shootings were attributed to him in the court case, all of which occurred between 1989 and 1991. By the end of that period, Washington, D.C. had become the murder capital of America with 80.6 deaths per 100,000 residents. Wayne played a pretty big part in winning that dubious accolade for the city. Two of his lieutenants, Michael Anthony Jackson and Tyrone Lasar Price, were also his co defendants. It's also crazy that the capital city, like, which I I don't know, all I know about Washington, D.C., is isn't it just where a bunch of politicians and lobbyists live and do, like, politicking? And also the murder capital. I mean, like, isn't it? somewhere like, I don't know. (laughs) I always imagine like Detroit seems fairly scary, but I think that's just because a few years ago there were those pictures of those abandoned houses and no one wanted to live in Detroit, for I don't even remember the reason. The houses were basically free or something, But nope, Washington, DC. Prosecutors- I mean, I guess not anymore, because they said previously or something. Anyway. Prosecutors were looking for the death penalty, but Silk managed to dodge it by pleading guilty on all counts. Instead, he was sentenced to five consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. The only question remaining is: who sold him out? Okay. If he finds this out, he's gonna be in jail. But he's got he must have tons of money like stashed away with his other, you know, criminal dudes. And he will just be on the phone and be like, I don't know who it is. I need you to kill them. And then you can take, I mean, the money, I'm sure it's some used him in prison, but he's never going to be able to spend like all of the money he made. So be like, you can just take a big bag of money from my secret money vault and uh, just take care of this person for me. So if he snitch him, even if he goes to prison, you're going to be living in fear forever. I mean, I assume the guy goes into a witness protection or whatever, but all I know from movies is that doesn't always work. Etu Alpo. I'd imagine Wayne. Oh, is it going to be someone he really knows close? I'd imagine Wayne is still deeply bitter about the answer to that question. This gangster, so obsessed with loyalty, was eventually undone by one of his closest allies. It all started in July 1990 when Wayne's employer found himself on the wrong end of an FBI indictment. Alpo Martinez was slapped with federal drug trafficking charges. One of his accomplices, Nathaniel Watkins, testified to the FBI that Martinez had been moving huge amounts of cash between New York and D.C. since the late 1980s. Once the news broke, Alpo went on the run. The cops never caught up with him until 17 months later. By then, they had built up a mammoth case against him, including over a dozen counts of murder during his hostile takeover of D.C. And who do you think was the main instrument of all of this death-dealing? To dodge a big chunk of his charges and slash his prison sentence down to a measly 35 years, Alpo flipped on Wayne Silk Perry, along with many more of his accomplices. This seems like a terrible idea. If you plead guilty, you can probably get life without parole, right? Because the Wayne dude did, Wayne Silk. And so you're going to snitch on everyone. you still got to go to prison for 35 years. Which, how old is this dude? Like, 34? He was Wayne's boss. So let's assume he's like, I don't know, 35, 40. So he's going to be in there till he's 75. Do you live long in prison? I don't know. The healthcare is probably pretty good. It's not like that. But I can't imagine. It just doesn't seem worth it to flip unless you're going to get witness protection or some sh- and someone's going to murder you in prison. In a world where snitching is the ultimate moral sin, this was unforgivable. But unfortunately for all of his associates, the Fleds placed Alpo far beyond the reach of Silk and his crew. This was one problem that a few bullets to the head couldn't fix. And just like that, the Empire came crumbling down, and Wayne Silk Perry's life as a free man came to an end. Wow, so they actually have managed to keep him safe in prison? That's crazy. I I just, I don't know. I saw Breaking Bad when all those people got murdered in prison. Uh, I. You can get murdered in prison. (laughs) I mean, not because you, you know, for someone on the outside or even inside wants you dead, they can make that happen. Maybe it's not like that in real life. Maybe it is. I don't know. Wrap up. Wayne Silk Perry is now living out the rest of his days at a maximum security prison in Washington State. After converting to Islam, he now goes by the name Nikosi Shaka Zulu L. As for the guy who sold him out, he's the only one to get anything like a happy ending here. Alpo was released from federal prison in 2015 and is now living under a new identity. He got his sentence down to 35 years, flipped on the guy, and he got released after 1989, 15 years? Was it 15 years when he went to prison? Roughly. So that's not bad. I I take everything back I said about snitching on him. (laughs) Apparently it was worthy for this Alpo dude. Shit. Okay. To call Alpo the villain of this story might be a bit of a stretch, because really, if mass-murdering gangster Silk is the hero, then something has gone really, really wrong. Yeah, I mean, we don't always need to have heroes. In this story, it's just two villains. Some online idolize Wayne Perry as a street hero, doing what he had to do to survive, but I'm also pretty sure plenty of others also managed to survive without murdering 100-plus people with baseball bats, guns, and explosives. Hardly the sort of life a person should put on a pedestal. Still, at least the next time he gets a name check in the Top 40 rap song, you know exactly what murderous, cold-blooded maniac they're talking about. And now you know. Finally, just some dismembered appendices and then we're done for today. Number one. In the early 90s, Wayne and his gang were driving around with an associate who tried to start trouble. Wayne pulled into a parking lot and challenged him a fight. When the guy refused, Silk forced him to strip naked, then shot him in the backside, making him waddle off in agony. As one of the crew said, everyone was laughing, it was all a big joke to Silk. Oh yeah. Good one. Classic prank, Wayne. <laughs> Number two. Alper Martinez has also himself been memorialized in a song far less favorably than his bodyguard, of course. Few artists have anything good to say about snitches. <laughs> he name checks and tracks by Jay-Z, The Game, NAS, Drake, Future, 50 Cent, and many more. Must be tough listening to the radio for this iconic East Coast Judas. And that's... Everybody is our episode of Casual Criminalist for today. I do hope you enjoyed it. As I always say, look, if you're watching this on YouTube, there is a like button for you to use, or a dislike button if you don't like the show. That's also or this just this episode, that's also possible. Subscribe. Also, if you are listening to this as a podcast, welcome. Thank you. Please leave a review if you can on your platform. Make sure you're subscribed. And why not tell a friend? That one's irrelevant. Like, it doesn't matter which one you're listening on, podcast or YouTube. Why not tell a friend about the show? Share it on social media. It does me a favor. It gets more people listening. And I like it when people listen and watch the things I make. So thank you. And I'll see you next time.